to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge guest, what an episode, Sam McFeeters, author of the brand new, awesome, awesome book, Mutations. It's kind of a memoir about his life in hardcore. Also from the band Born Against, the Mighty Born Against, Men's Recovery Project, and Wrangler Brutes, head of Vermiform Records. This is a good one. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. I love you, little bro. Thank you for what you do over here. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is just by telling all your friends about what we do over here on the podcast. You can also subscribe to it and rate it over there on iTunes. And if you want to support the show uh, monetarily, I guess, you can head over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and check out some of the stuff we do over there. Uh, just actually uploaded a four and a half hours of brand new footnotes today. So uh, lots of stuff over there to check out. Uh, and thank you to everyone that does do that. I really, really appreciate it. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just, just don't do it out of your own pocket. And so they give me some money to help me cover the costs over here. And I very much appreciate that. Thank you very much to them for that. Uh, and also, oh, also brand new dropping over there at flood. My friends flood have put up another video from punk as fuck, which is a video series that I did with them, um, well, a few years ago now, but it's finally seen the light of day. And there's some amazing stuff on this. Like if you have not checked it out yet, my breakfast at Roscoe's with Steve Albini and Don Bowles is one for the ages. And recently they actually just posted a new one with Moby where I sit down with Moby who's been on the podcast since then, but this is actually the first time that he and I ever sat down and talked and uh, we talk about punk. So check out those brand new things over there at flood. Uh, you can also check them out on my social media as well. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm watching a YouTube channel so you can check it out on the YouTube channel. There you go. So I wonder if old episodes on there. Well, I don't know why people listen to podcasts on YouTube. No judgment, no judgment. If that's what you do, do it, but uh, yeah, but apparently people do. So I'm going to be putting up some old episodes over there on YouTube. I'll have more information on that very soon as that goes up. But in the meantime, uh, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy this video with with Moby. If you enjoyed that interview with Moby, you're definitely going to enjoy this because it's like, uh, you know, I just uh, keep it keep it punk, keep it nerdy with that dude when I'm talking to him about that stuff. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show. It is a huge one. Sam McFeeters, author of this incredible new book, Mutations, uh, lead singer in the incredible Born Against, uh, formerly publisher of Dear Jesus. He's put out a bunch of other uh, sort of fiction books before his latest book. Also ran Vermiform Records. The guy's a legend. There's no, <laughs> like a, in, in punk rock circles, Born Against, um, their their name rings loud and, and uh, you know, a band that has drawn a lot of controversy over the years um, and a band that has also inspired a lot of people to to make music, myself included in, in the inspiration side of things. Um, so it has been someone that I've always kind of really wanted to talk to. But if I'm being completely honest, and I tell Sam this in the interview, so this is not a... 
not something I'm dropping on. I had, I had some headed hesitations interviewing him. I was like, eh, I don't know. He's, he's going to be too cool for this thing. It's, it's just not going to work out. Like, I just, I just don't know. And so I was humming and hawing. And it was actually Chris O'Toole, uh, co-host of Footnotes and real, you know, real like uh, champion of this podcast from the very, very beginning before, before we even started doing Footnotes. You know, Chris has been kind of a guy who's really kind of gotten what I wanted to do with this thing. And he's like, you got to have Sam on. Like, how could you even be second guessing this thing? And so, Chris, it really hats off to you, buddy, for making this thing happen. Uh, and I hope I lived up to, uh, you know, we did a lot of prep for this, Chris and I. We talked a lot about this interview going in and stuff. And so I hope I lived up to the prep sessions that we put into this thing. And uh, yeah, because this, this is a fun one. I really, really love this episode. I didn't know I was going to kind of find this sort of one-on-one, uh, -on -one, uh, you know, kinship with uh, with with Sam. You know, like I was going to relate to him so much uh, on a sort of a personal level. Um, yeah, this is, this is a fun one. This is a good episode. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Check out his book. If you listen to this podcast, this, you know, as Chris O'Toole says, this book is tailor-made for you. Like, you, if you enjoy Turn Out a Punk, you're going to enjoy this book. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, I don't, I don't think there's any notes. I'm, I'm just looking over my notes. If I have anything to, to say about this one. Nope. I don't think I do. Anyway. So sit back, relax and enjoy Sam McFeeders on. Da -da -da -punk. <laughs> Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yes. Well, as I was just uh, punishing you a little bit off air, I am a huge fan and you are a massive influence on me. And kind of a dream guest for this podcast because, uh, you know, as illustrated by your book, you are kind of like the original, like, uh, hardcore kind of like obsessive, you know, nerd kind of thing. You know, and I mean that in the most, you know, affectionate way possible. But like, you know, you kind of established the idea of like being someone that looks at hardcore from, you know, a, a, a different sort of vantage point than not necessarily just being in it. Sure. Um, but I got to start this thing off the way they all start off, which is, Sam, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Oh, um, how much backstory do you want? This is just kind of freeform drum solo. Exactly. As many details as possible, right? As okay. nerdy as you want to get. Nerdy that's what as we, I want. Yeah. Uh, I went to military school in eighth grade. It's 82, 83. And by the end of the year, it was clear to my parents that I was completely fucking miserable. So for my freshman year, they let me go to this grubby hippie school in Vermont to just decompress. Um, that was the first time I'd ever lived away from home. And I was in this environment suddenly with no homework. So I kind of had the time and autonomy to figure out what kind of person I was. Uh, so yeah, hippie school. This school didn't have any classes. Instead, sometimes we'd have these presentations where anyone could give a could give a like a mini lecture on any topic they knew something about. Okay. So one day we had a double feature. It was the principal who gave a talk on Rachmaninoff, and then two <laughs> students who were boys about my age gave a talk on the Dead Kennedys. I'd already kind of I, I think I probably knew the name of the Dead Kennedys. I knew about through osmosis, um, but it was osmosis as filtered through a child's perspective. Yeah, so, okay. for example, I saw Fear on Saturday Night Live, but I was 11, so I didn't know what the hell I was looking at. 
And is that kind of how child? Yeah, I saw it live. Wow. And I watched all Saturday Night Live, and um, I really wanted to see um, from Halloween the guest from Escape from New York. Oh, bald man yeah, whose name I'm it? blanking on. He he was the host. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll just, I know we'll just, mainly from the introduction to those segments. Yeah, we'll just call him Bald Man. Um, <laughs> and so when Fear came on, I I didn't know. Literally, it was just it was like a DMT trip or something. I just didn't know what it was I was processing. But that's kind of how childhood is, you know. Like you don't know what a lot of things are. Um, and there were there were some little things like that, that sort of informed my feelings about punk. Like when I saw Spaz Attack in uh, Devo's Satisfaction video and then in American Pop. Or, you know what I'm talking about? Spaz mm-hmm. Attack, the guy who did the flips? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I know, I know later, American Pop very well. Yeah. Uh, later, recently, I realized that later he went kind of zigzag Sputnik. He was a dancer for David Bowie. Oh, wow. Which was a little disappointing, but I mean, you can't, just be spaz attack for the rest of your life. <laughs> no, you got to settle down somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then my mom and I had traveled to London the summer before I went to hippie school. Uh, and we actually wound up staying on King's road. So I'd seen a lot of that second, third wave postcard punk stuff. Uh, you know, like the thing where guys with these perfectly shellac two foot mohawks pose for pictures with tourists. It seems really quaint now. Um, so my feelings about punk were kind of filtered through this novelty angle, if that makes sense. It kind of all seemed related to Dr. Demento, uh, meaning I was interested in it when I was a kid. So I was also interested in like learning magic and mastering the boomerang. And I hadn't listened to music at all really before ninth grade. So my main things that year were the police and Jimi Hendrix. And then... I just was sort of interested in putting out feelers into this other, this weird world of stuff. Uh, I went to go see my first concert that year. It was Laurie Anderson at the Flynn Theater in downtown Burlington. The memory feels like it was the same kind of curiosity I had about punk bands and Devo and underground comics. I didn't really have a sense of how things worked. It was just kind of uh, trying stuff out. Um, were you a fan of O Superman or something, or like how, why why her of all people to go see? I th- I think I must have heard about her on national public radio, and I'd heard that she made her own instruments and had that weird um, tape head violin that she used, <laughs> and it was good. But I didn't understand the concept of concerts, and it was way 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 too loud for me. Like I couldn't process the sound, which is something that happened. I was always really religious about wearing earplugs when I sang for bands. So it was like my first moment of being in a concert was just this just like static. And I had to run out and and stuff toilet paper mayors. And then that happened the exact same way at my first punk show, which I talked about some mutations. Mm. Um, So anyway, two things happened after that dead Kennedy's lecture in ninth grade hippie school. One is I had a heated argument with one of the boys who gave the lecture about the song Nazi Punks Fuck Off. And my take was that the Dead Kennedys were clearly Nazis. The song was openly celebrating fascism. And I think I called the kid a sucker for saying that the Dead Kennedys weren't fascists. (laughs) And then two, I went to a record store and bought a tape of plastic surgery disasters. I don't know how much time 
pass between those two things, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was like the next day. Cause like I was 14 and there's that thing that happened right around there. I think that's kind of universal where you say or do something that's so totally stupid that you just want to compensate by doing the opposite thing immediately. Like you realize in real time that, that the meat of your argument does not hold up in any way. Absolutely. So that's how I was as a kid. Anyway, weird, weird memory. I've been there. I definitely can relate to that. So yeah, I mean, as an adult, sometimes I do that too. In 10th grade, I returned to Albany where I'm from Albany, New York and started attending a Christian prep school. And at that point, in 84, it seemed like hardcore was everywhere. It was, it was like ambient. It would have been weird if I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Even kids who weren't into it were still kind of fascinated with it. And by the time I graduated from that same school, three years later, a third of my class went to shows. And I'd say the other two thirds listened to pop music that all, I mean, like what, a third of it came from punk, Billy Idol. Blondie, definitely Beastie Boys, the Go-Go's. It's a weird thing trying to figure out your your thought process back then. Um, I remember from 11th grade on, I had this mentor, Dave. He ran Fetal Effort, which later became Combined Effort, the record label. Mm -hmm. Dave booked shows, and he sort of showed the ropes to me and my best friend, Jason. Uh, He let us tape records, his apartment, kind of steered us towards the good fanzines, arranged for us to interview bands. That kind of felt like the key thing to me because I wouldn't have known how you know and he said come over to my house i'll arrange the whole thing i have so-and-so's phone number we'll do it there just bring a tape recorder so eventually jason and i took over booking shows after dave left because he was in college and then after we graduated jason and i both went to the same college the new school uh lang college you know if lang college is lang college a thing that's known of a lot of people in the hardcore scene went there in the 80s no, but you, you got to hit me to it now because this sounds very intriguing. Well, I, I'm not, I didn't have a great experience there. Um, just as a school, I don't, I don't think the, the, it's the undergrad, one of the two undergrad schools um, in the new school for social research university, Parsons art school is okay, sort of the yeah. companion one. That's the one people have heard of, Otis Parsons and a roommate with a uh, roomed, roomed with all those people when I was a freshman which was um, kind of a bummer. They're always really shitty sculptures in the hallway. Um, Jason wound up singing for Life's Blood, and then so it was through him that I met all my own future bandmates, uh, a couple of whom came, well, at the start, all of them came from Life's Blood. Originally, it was just me singing for Life's Blood with a new name and sort of a new mission statement. Oh, I want to get to life split, but before we get there, um, I wanted to kind of go back to like when you first got back to uh, Albany and, you know, hardcore kind of taking over, what were some of the local bands that were kind of happening around then? Uh, I got into it right when it was the second wave of Albany hardcore bands. Fit for Abuse okay, yeah. was the main band. They're great, but again, not to be confused. I say gangs I wrote about in the book, which is a weird, slightly <laughs> pretentious thing to do. Um, as I discussed in my book, I feel like I should have a pipe um there's another fit for abuse the one that everyone knows of now from massachusetts this one never released anything i haven't even found any of their recordings online they were really good they were on the albany style comp right the seven inch yeah that's right i don't remember them being good on that but i know they had a tape it might have been a tape off the radio it's been so long uh who else there's uh, fit for abuse 
The third wave of Albany bands happened while I was in that scene. Um, no outlet. Cranial abuse came about kind of late in the game. They were from Troy. And stigmata, I, I want to say stigmata came out of cranial abuse, but I don't know that for sure. Do you know that? Stigmata was kind of a big band, right? Yeah, stigmata, definitely. I didn't know. Maybe they had some connection to cranial abuse. I did not know that uh, off the top of my head. But I think, yeah, stigmata is like, Kind of like 94, I think they put it there for 7 to 95, maybe. Okay. Um, but I that uh, was Wolfpack going? Oh, right. And Wolfpack. Yeah, Wolfpack were sort of part of that second wave. And Wolfpack okay. must have had members of Fit for Abuse. Oh, and Albany Style. Jesus, Albany Style. Albany Style was Dave, Dave Stein, uh, the guy that I talked about, who was sort of my scene mentor. That was his band. I was always fascinated with the first wave of Albany punk bands that were all gone by the time I showed up. Um, Capital, Grim Surprise, The Plague, The Verge. They weren't exactly what I would call good. That Verge 7 Inch is fantastic. But the Verge 7 Inch is fucking amazing. Yeah. I, yes. <laughs> you can barely say it's hardcore. It's just like weird. It's very Boston-y, uh, mm -hmm. very Mission of Burma-y. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that thing. And I really regret having gotten rid of it. Although I'm sure I could find that online somewhere. Um, Capital, I only saw once. And that was the very first time that the light bulb kind of went off in my head that that was maybe something I wanted to do, which was not to be in a band, but to be in a band that antagonized people. I saw the singer do that at a, an outdoor, there's this outdoor festival that happened. I don't know if it still happens there, Lark Fest. It's the, the Lark Street Festival. And they played at the end of the block and there was a beer garden going on. And um, it would, the way it was set up was not good uh, in terms of like flow of people. So everyone wound up trapped watching this band Capital and, I went inside a drugstore because it was too loud. So I, I just have this weird memory of standing by the Hallmark cards, watching this band and realizing that maybe I might want to be in a band someday because um, they just were so into pissing everyone off. And I, I really, really hated drunk people. I still don't like being around drunk people. Mm -hmm. Um but that was just a huge part of my life back then, even before I knew, even before Straight Edge existed. Like when I was a kid, kid, I just knew that there was something about the behavior of drunk people that really infuriated me, not in a rational way. And the fact that they were just antagonizing these drunk people in the audience was this really strange, beautiful thing to me. Uh, that's kind of, I'm sure there's some other Albany bands I'm missing, but that was like the core of it. It wasn't a big scene at all. And um, what's that weird compil? What's that weird compilation that's kind of got a pastelly kind of cover? Um, I think the Verge are on it too. Um, and it's uh, it's like Albany is great or Albany is burning, maybe or something like that. But uh, geez, I don't know that. I don't know. Is Capital on that? Like, what did Capital sound like? Um, sort of. I mean, I guess a little generic because I'm struggling for adjectives. Uh, <laughs> a little goofy, a little that style. There, there was a style without a name um, where people would do the dummy thing. Like they're singing. It was a style of singing where someone's like, and then I do, do, do. It's almost like the way that people do the the half capitalized, half not capitalized thing on Twitter now. It was like a vocal version of that. 
And that's what I remember Capitol sounding like. The singer this, was this guy named Jim, this really interesting, he, he was really tall and gangly. He had a great stage presence. I've seen some videos of them too. And there was something about he got robbed at gunpoint at a store. He was known for being a victim of violent crime in Albany more than he was known for being the singer for Capitol. Also, I know that Capitol did some reunion shows sometime in the 21st century. Uh, and I think those are the songs that I saw. I know those videos are still online. I'll have to look that up. But there's also I, that Lumpin' Poles band, Proles band or something? Yeah, Lumpin' Proles, right. I have no idea what they sounded like, but was always interested. Never found their records or if they put out records. The Plague were really goofy um, and really offensive in a way that was kind of funny and kind of just messed up. Um they had song abortion yanked sucker out. It's just stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Very punk of the time. Yeah. Uh, the lumping pole sing pole single. Like the reason I thought about that is that I think on, they do have a seven inch. She wasn't home and a hundred percent. That is part of that same genre that you're describing with that vocal style. Cause that evoked yeah. that single immediately for me. Yeah. I want to really emphasize to you that you're not going to find any, like there's no Coro seven inch hidden in Albany's in the mists of time. <laughs> You're not going to find any amazing gems. You'll find interesting stuff, but Albany was really interesting as a, like a little community and as a scene, but I don't think Albany was really like an artistic hub. Um, and also like Albany's handicapped. It's two hours away from New York. I've lived in a lot of cities that were satellite cities, Providence, Richmond. Um, I mean, anywhere in North Jersey are all sort of, at the mercy of these larger cities, but New York isn't really close enough to Albany. Like I didn't go to shows in New York until I had a driver's license. How was I going to get there? Mm -hmm. Oh, and in fact, I didn't even go to shows there until I lived there. I drove down with some friends to see the Beastie Boys and Murphy's Law. And it was like, I don't know, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And we were so happy. And then we get there and it was sold out. And it had never occurred to me that that was, plausible that that was a possibility <laughs> yeah. um and i remember all of us being really sad just standing around in front of irving plaza and we didn't know what to do like we were just teenagers we didn't know what the hell to do in new york city and we had a long serious discussion about going to jfk airport to watch the airplanes come and go <laughs> it was a very like like um country mouse in the big city type of scene like we all had little hayseed sticking out of our mouths um but two hours is not you don't get the benefits of living in the country. You just live in a city that's not the city. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, anyway, I just want to make that clear to you as a record collector. Like, um, Albany, cool, but just lower your expectations, you know? Well, there's that Miss Mommy, I'm a Misfit single or something by the Misfits, the Tragics, I think they changed their name to. That's, but you're right. It's not the Coro single. What is that? I don't know what, I've never I, heard of that. I'm 90% sure that's from Albany. Cause I remember the first time we played there, it had just been reissued. And I remember going to the record store the next day and picking it up, but I got to double check. Maybe I'm wrong. And if I am, I'm sorry for leading you astray, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Like, they where where and when did you play in Albany? Uh, we played, we played in Albany actually quite a few times. Cause it was kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, Chicago obviously is kind of the same way. Like, it's a scene that really picks up in the nineties, like where it was like a major stop, you know, yes. you know, after like from your pre period on. 
from 87 on? I thought it was more like early 90s on. Well, that's what I mean. Like sort of like, you know, I mean, post-born against period. Oh, right. On. Okay. Right, right, right. Um, I had always, or not always, but I've heard more than once that Albany got really violent. Is that true? We're, we're lucky because fucked up is a, like kind of a, you know, we existed in kind of like a nerdier sector of hardcore. So like we right. we would go there and we'd play with like the FUs who would be doing a reunion show and, mm. you know, like <laughs> we'd be playing with like police line and stuff like that. So it was, hmm. uh, it was like, I think a different kind of scene. So we didn't see it, but yeah, definitely like, you know, there, there it was a, there was also a tough scene there too. I, I yeah. Cause that was non-existent when I was there. It was. I had never seen a fight at a show until I went to New York and it didn't really click to me that that was a thing at shows. I just didn't, I didn't know. Um, we would all go to Chuck E. Cheese after the show and just take over Chuck E. Cheese, just literally like marching somebody orders some pizzas and then three or four of us would go to the ball pit and just inform all the children out. You're getting out right now. And um, it was a blast, but it did not prepare me for the big city at all. It's amazing how like it's completely parallel to what's going on in New York at the time, which is like this scene that effectively is militarizing, and uh, you know there's yes. no no Chuck E. Cheese to be found on Manhattan. I yeah, it could have changed everything if there was. You know, if someone had put a Chuck E. Cheese on the Lower East Side, maybe it would have been you know a different a different vibe. History would be completely different. <laughs> completely different at this point. Um, so I, I guess like what were some of the bands that would kind of come through, you know, that were kind of like, you know, more aggressive, more fast, more like what you'd wind up kind of being a part of. During the period that I was going to shows and the, putting on shows. Yeah. Like just kind of like, yeah, the touring ba bands that were kind of coming through Albany of that. Let's do this. I have my computer here. I am a, compulsive archivist i lost something that i worked a long time on a decade ago and it was really clear to me like fuck this that will never happen again and so i've archived everything in my life except for this one thing and that includes show flyers where would that be there's wolfpack underdog came up a lot there was there was a okay, whole yeah there was this little world of New York bands that were sort of regulars in Albany. Um, Underdog, we all loved deeply. And that was including, they had several incarnations before they were Underdog. They were True Blue. And then I think there were the Numbskulls before that. I had always thought until I moved to New York that it, Underdog were on the same level as Agnostic Front and Chromags. I didn't realize that they weren't that big a band in the city itself. Mm -hmm. um, Descendants, Dag Nasty, Gangrene. Oh God, this was an amazing show. No means no. I I put this one on, although I hadn't booked it, and breakdown. What? <laughs> and so it was all this was this must have been 87. So this was yeah, this was totally 87. This was um really that first year of everyone in Albany just being completely gung-ho on New York hardcore. And everyone showed up to see breakdown and they're their first incarnation before the singer uh, had the band to himself. And so no means no shows up. They're probably like 20 years older than all of us, but they looked like they were 40 years older than us. They had really good looks. The singer was wearing a suit, but it, it honestly looked like he had been buried in the suit. It was just like covered in grit and like dust. 
And I, can, I didn't realize it at the time, but that, this was like an existential punishment for them. And that, the way that they behaved at that show kind of became a template for me on how people should behave at shows that aren't working. Because nobody wanted to see No Means No at that show <laughs> at all. And they were completely professional, just smiles beforehand. When they left, they thanked me profusely. And I'm like a high school kid that's just humiliated them. And they just saw the big picture. Later, the one thing that Wrangler Bruce really wanted to do, which we did, was to always be a consistently live band, to not let external forces influence our set, which was not the case in Born Against. I'd say more than 50% of that was me, but it wasn't all me. Just if we found ourselves playing a bad show and we, we played some doozies, um, I would let everyone know how miserable I was. It was just not cool. And so I walk in your footsteps in that too. And I think a lot of people did. I think you set a template for an approach. So it's interesting to find out where your uh, template for that approach came. Now, from. wait, which approach are we talking about? The born against approach or the Wrangler Brutes approach? Born against pretty, approach. Like the honest, yeah. complete honesty, like the idea that like heart you're, you're by breaking that fourth wall, you're somehow, you know, taking the sting out of how horrible it feels to be up there. Yeah. I found that, things work better. We played a show in Detroit to maybe eight people and we were really excited to do it. We're like, yeah, this is, this is, we're testing the principle. And so we just made sure that we did a really good set for those eight people. And that felt a lot better than say the time in Texas when I had a temper tantrum in front of 200 people before we played, I flipped over the merchandise table and then I think got into arguments with more than one band member on stage, just that kind of shit. I love watching, but I don't, it didn't feel good to be part of it. Uh, I'm still looking at these flyers. There was a really good, it was a very diverse, New York hardcore thing was kind of, was diluted somewhat because there were like Rhythm Pigs played, Victim's Family, these really weird, interesting bands. Um, well, but I'm also seeing. Oh, sorry, go on. No, what? I was, it's, it's an interesting time for hardcore at that point, right? Because it's like, it is kind of a change over time you know, in the late eighties where you have all these bands that are kind of been around for a while, um, that are getting a little funky in their approach to music, you know, and like, they're all getting, there were some bad times in that. Yeah. It's, it was a little bit of a drought, but it was an interesting drought. Yeah, definitely. And like their chops are getting really good so they can all play at this point, but it's also like, you know, you, you describe it in the book, uh, perfectly with revolution summer and this idea that there's like, kind of this 85 period that not just, I don't think it's even just in DC. It's kind of happens everywhere in the world. It feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think no means no is a prime example of that. And I think, you know, dinosaur junior kind of, you know, going from deep wound to dinosaur junior and like, right. It, it feels like that's like a good getting off point or getting weirder point. And then there's like a new wave of people like yourself getting, getting involved. Yeah, um, from my perspective, there definitely was a lag period there um, where you had to go pretty far outside your comfort zone to see something new and good. <laughs> um, and I'm seeing right now in these Albany flyers, it's weird. I've never really looked at these. I just scanned them and didn't look at them. They're, it's sort of like doing... Um, like a geological excavation, you can see the point where the meteorite impacted 70,000 years ago and the tree rings or whatever. Like there's a point here where Albany shows 
just became submerged in one very specific type. Like here's Uniform Choice, Warzone, um, Youth of Today, Token Entry, Verbal Assault. Like at a certain point, those bands clearly won over uh, the versus like the Rhythm Pigs, Victims Family side. Mm-hmm. Um, Adolescence, this was a weird show. They came through... There were no shows at this point. I saw them at a bar and I was really resentful of having to do that. And I had no frame of reference. I didn't listen to much West Coast hardcore. God, that's a weird. There's so much weird shit when you look back and you're like, how, what? Was my brain functioning? Why was that? What, what year would that show have been? Like 87, 88? Adolescence? That was 86. Yeah, their 86 tour. They played with Scab, which uh, was Mano um, from the movie. Uh, Another state of mind. Oh, and then Minot later moved to New York. I was, I wouldn't say I was friends with her, but I was friends with people who were friends with her. And we were all like, that's Minot from that movie. She went out with a guy named Fuck You. They were, they were in the squatter scene. And the squatter scene was this weird parallel scene to the ABC in a real world. And those people were always a little bit older than us. And the exact same, like, Minot means no fashion sense, but like for real. Like mm-hmm. if you, if you, brush against them there will be a cloud of debris sort of floating over them pig pen style was there like a music scene associated that was that like squatter rot kind of stuff i'm sure it was but i don't exactly know because i i didn't go to a lot of their shows Mm -hmm. um so the answer is yes but that's not like a really precise yes (laughs) okay um yeah i find new york at that time that you kind of move there also just so fascinating that there's also like you know, it's all falls under the broad umbrella of punk rock or punk derived music, but there's like so many little separate scenes from like the scum rock stuff to the noise rock stuff to like the hardcore stuff. Like it really feels like late eighties, early nineties in New York is, it just kind of goes all over the place for a second. Yeah. So there was this period in there. It was less than six months. I wanted to write about this for a long time and Maybe I did just a little bit in the book, but not as much as I wanted to. So it was in 89. It was after CBGB stopped doing matinees. And that was right when Born Again started playing shows. So it's we had this vision of this alternate reality. It's really hard to explain. It was just a handful of shows. We played one at the 13th Street Squat in the basement. There was one at this weird abandoned theater. It just seems like a dream. And so these shows would be kind of everyone. It would be like... I don't know, a youth crew band and then some really weird uh, like primordial neurosis type band um, and a performance artist. And then I remember Allen Ginsberg did a poetry reading at the show right before Underdog. I think it was before <laughs> Underdog. And they were just, and, and the theater itself looked like the theater Escape from New York. And this, this whole little teeny tiny period, there were a few other shows I saw like this. It seemed like this one variable being moved around, which was that there were no more matinees for just a little bit at CB's, just rearranged everything. And people didn't quite know how to react. They were thrown off and there were less fights. And so that informed kind of all of the born against experience for us. I don't know if I'm speaking for Adam, but I think at least somewhat in that we had this, this vision in the back of our minds of how, how much fun and weird a show could be because anybody would come to it. There'd be these like 60 year old weirdos in like bathing suits and snowmobile boots and um, these strange squatters and 
really, really dangerous skinheads. I mean, people who had straight up murdered other people. And so only four years later, we were just playing shows to, to like young boys and everybody had backpacks and all the excitement had kind of just leached out of it. But I think part of it is that we were spoiled isn't quite the right word, but that we had seen this other world in 89 in New York. It's what it seemed like is that I was being offered a glimpse of all those shows where people showed up dressed like they were going to a, a Rocky horror midnight screening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was kind of that sense of adventure and like I had it and then it was just whisked away. It was the weirdest thing. Is that reflected at all on that like uh, where look at all the children now compilation like that that oh, that always struck me as having like kind of like a weird diverse sound but I guess that's a year or so later. Yeah, that was a couple years later. Um, I would say that maybe Sam Fisher, who ran that label, was shooting for that as was I. Yeah. Um, when I the Fear Smell comp was was. Uh, patterned after wanted to be those what are those comps on New Alliance? Life is healthy. Oh, life is life is beautiful. Yeah, life is beautiful and life is healthy. And those yeah, those things just destroyed me. They were so good and so weird. And it really was every track you were finding this crazy, obscure, weird little thing. And so I can see that in the aesthetic of the things I was trying to do. If I had to guess, I'd say that's what he was trying to do also. But but again, yeah, that was just a couple of years later. All that was was gone. It was back to being the tough guy scenes and then the ABC No Rio scene. And uh, ABC No Rio for a little while was like a, almost like a buzzword. It didn't really refer to a physical space. It was just, oh, those ABC No Rio guys. And I think a lot of people who didn't like that scene but didn't go to the shows probably thought it was something much larger and grander than what it was, which was a really disgusting little place where you could have sewage dripped off on you, but where a lot of really interesting, cool people hung out and did not fight. It, it's funny. Cause I had recently someone on the show and uh, you know, fr from the same time period in New York, um, this guy, Kevin Gill, um, uh, you know, who is involved in wrestling. And he was saying, uh, I brought up ABC no Rio and he was like, had such an aversion to it. Like it was like an immediate, like, Oh, I never huh. went there. I didn't like those shows and I didn't like those people. Cause they didn't like us. Yeah. 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 That was, um, which was, um, clearly engineered intentionally on our part. Like that was our way of having safe shows was to make clear to those people. They weren't welcome there and that you're going to see probably a dude's dick come to the show and that's that. So just don't come, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's weird that it worked. Uh, I could name on one hand all the scary things that I saw happen at ABC No Rio. It was very little anything. I think once a guy came in, I don't know, he was on PCP or something, and that was a little weird. But that's just like a random New York City thing. That's not even a hardcore thing. That's just that's that's what's going to happen if you're in Manhattan in the 80s or the early 90s. Is somebody on PCP is going to walk in and demand something? Yeah, like, I, it's funny that it did work, because, like, in other scenes where people have tried to kind of set up, like, you know, opposing scenes, well, of course. it doesn't always work like that. I mean, even Gilman Street, you could say it worked just through sheer force of will. I mean, I've yeah, I've heard way more stories than have been documented about just the sheer 
the like constant zombie movie style onslaught of shitheads who tried to make things difficult for Gilman Street. And uh, it's strange to me that ABC and Rio didn't have that. Yeah, it's almost like a generational thing with the Gilman where there's always like, you know, like a new adversary emerging each each season, you know, yes. like, like yes. some like new opposing faction. Yeah. Uh, Going, getting to New York and kind of arriving there, what were some of the bands that you were drawn to? Because, like, you know, obviously in the book, it's kind of clear that you're not a huge fan of the youth crew stuff. But, like... Well, I, I was at the time. I wasn't a huge fan. But, I mean, I had Youth of Today records. Mm-hmm. Um, I I didn't really sort out my feelings about them until Lifeblood came around. Lifeblood were extremely vocal in not liking that crowd. And so I sort of migrated over to that... Um, but I still, I would go to Youth of Today shows. I saw them a bunch. Um, I don't think I could mention any bands you wouldn't know. I mean, it was most of the New York hardcore stuff. I hadn't even really sorted out what I really liked and what I didn't like at the time. I, I went through this weird, like, crash course musical reorientation thing in my second year of college when I started really hanging out with all those Lifeblood guys, but before Born Against happened, where... They took it upon themselves. It's really sick. It's so sick. They took it upon themselves to sort of remake my personality. And I'm glad they did because I just, I was just kind of this weird ninny guy who didn't really have a direction in life. And um, I listened to a lot of really shitty bands and they were determined to just change my musical tastes as well as how I behaved. Also, I dressed like a God. I dressed horribly. Um, really bad times. So there was a lot of stuff like, hey, you need to finally listen to Black Flag. Because I, I had in high school, but Black Flag was not exactly like the band. Um, and then also they just, my friends, all those guys had much better record collections. And so it was, oh, here's Articles of Faith. Wow, here's what Battalion of Saints sound like. Bet you never heard them. Um, a lot of them listen to a lot of oi, a lot of British stuff. And I don't like that much from that world, but there were a lot of really interesting new discoveries. And then also just all the, the straight New York hardcore bands that just fell kind of out of history. Like the mad, that's a crazy record. And have you, there's actually footage on YouTube of, of uh, George giving himself like a abortion on stage while they're playing. And it's like, Oh my God, that would be the greatest band ever with that music. Wait, what, that what, visual. what was he doing? I didn't giving himself an abortion on stage. Okay. Like, Cause he's like a special effects guy. He did all the special effects for the reanimator. Movies. Right. Yes. I knew that. Oh my God. Okay. No, I don't tell me anymore. No spoilers. Cause I'm going to yeah, watch No spoilers. That. Sorry. I apologize. Yeah, exactly. But watch it after the, but it is, you know, it's funny too. Cause life's blood to me were also like, the band that like once you were kind of into you know all the all this the youth crew stuff it was like kind of like the the thing that was passed on to you like oh no you got to hear this band really yeah like it was very much uh it's a huge band in toronto like it was definitely like a a big band for me and i remember even you know meeting a guy who i subsequently became friends with and uh he had a tape in his hand and it was a bootleg tape with breakdown thompson square park and life's blood and he's like yeah it's, i'm stoked to watch this breakdown set i'm like and life's blood's on it and he was like ah fuck that band i'm like oh that's the poser test that's, <laughs> that, that is definitely because they are just like a godly band to me because it's that like that oi influence that's kind of like taken and and brought in there and just given so much power like i just think those that record yeah. is fucking amazing 
Their first show, I just remembered this like a month ago. I was talking to Neil about it. I boycotted Lifeblood's first show <laughs> because I had gotten the incorrect information that they were playing a bar and it wasn't all ages. <laughs> and so the next time I saw them all, I was like, well, I guess you were noticing I wasn't at your show. And they're like, no, what are you talking about? You, you were there, weren't you there? I was like, no. <laughs> and it wasn't like that was my... That was my big protest. I was like, well, I think it's really crummy that you guys didn't play an all-ages show. And you're like, no, it was fine. It was all-ages. What are you talking about? And then this still went on for a while. Like, are you sure you weren't there? I think I saw you in the, in the crowd. <laughs> so humiliating. Uh, but, you know, like that, that made, gave you a greater appreciation probably of the second show. Yes. <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to remember if I liked Lifeblood. I mean, like I did, but I was friends with them. I, was, I, I went to all their practices. I think about that now. Like, why would you have anyone who's not in the band be at the practice? That's <laughs> awful. And their practices would be always they were in the minority. Most of the people in that room were not in the band. And they were just they would just sit around. There's no cell phones. There's just people sitting around listening to this band practice. Oh, what that's a weird amazing. concept. Did you have you ever done that? Have you ever had people at your practices who weren't in the band? Like it seems really rude now, right? Yeah, like we've had it occasionally with Fucked Up, but I definitely remember actually going to my friend's band's practices and sitting there for like, you know, five hours watching them work on songs. Like, it's not a yeah, fun also, thing. Also, it's not interesting. Yeah, not it's so all. weird. <laughs> I have the same relationship with my wife's bands now, Bavaria, who are sort of this, um, hmm, un unclassifiable, sort of ambient. And uh, they practice here at the house. I mean, they haven't in the last year. But uh, so I've been to all of Bavaria's practices because I'm here in the house. And I thought, oh, there's two bands I can say this about Bavaria and Lifeblood. How weird is that? That speaks to the diversity of your music taste, too, right? Very yes, cool. right. Um, going back to the Murderers comp, once again, like, I just think the vibe of this record, like, you know, was the influence on it from kind of the, the Crass record stuff and the UK stuff? Like, visually, I mean? No. No, no, no. I, I wasn't. Um, I had a bunch of those records, but that was never a big thing for me. And I never really connected to Crass in the way that everyone else did. Adam loved conflict. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, and I, I don't know what, like Flux of Pink Indians, or Rudimentary Peanut. Like, I like all those bands, but I don't, I don't listen to them now. Mm -hmm. Not because well, I don't dislike them. They just didn't have any real impact on me. Uh, I don't. I don't know what the thing was with that record. Um, the liner notes on that make me cringe pretty hard, so I haven't actually looked or listened to it. But I remember the record itself being really happy with it. Like that first Born Against song it came out kind of good. Um, was, there was a really bad taste in my mouth because um, Neil and our drummer Nigel quit the band immediately after we recorded that song. And there was this real question for the rest of that year over whether or not we would continue in born against. And I kind of remember friends sort of making fun of us. Like, are you guys still doing that? Like it's kind of, if half your band quits, are you still a band? Um, and we had to convince people like, yes, we're going to do all these great things. We had no records except for that little compilation. Um, I don't know for a while. It was like the whole winter. God, it was a shitty, I looked at the YMCA. It was the worst. With the YMCA in New York or in Albany? No, in New York, the 34th Street YMCA, yeah. I lived in room 666 at the 34th Street Y. 
Um, and it was a really, really dangerous, scary place. Uh, but Dan moved in. My dad looked at me and he said, are you sure you want to do this? And it was a six by 10 room that was literally room 666. And I would write a lot of bad Henry Rollins style poetry about being back in room 666. <laughs> and I had this band, but the band wasn't, I couldn't tell people I was in the band because like the band wasn't doing anything. It just was this dormant force for a while. It's, it's, uh, it's also amazing how many people come on the show and talk about how violent New York was at that time. Like it's, it's amazing to think, you know, like obviously the early eighties people talk about the Lower East Side and how wild it was, but even the late eighties, like people just talk about how, you know, you just had to accept the fact that you were probably going to be robbed. Like it's just something that happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw some really gnarly shit. And at the time, it's just like, oh, that's, that's life in the big city. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm glad I had the experience, but I'm not a fan of New York City. Um, and I think that there's something about this that really accentuates loneliness. Sort of in the exact opposite way that Los Angeles does. Um, even now I've been here 20 years and if I see a palm tree, I just get happy instantly. It still feels like I'm on tour and this is the good part. This is like the little halfway point break in the tour. Um, except with the added bonus of like, I don't have to play a show. And so I'm not nervous all the time. Yep. Oh my God. I'm, it's like, I'm, I'm hearing my inner monologue right now. I feel very connected with you in a very profound way. Yes. Um, going back once again to the murders comp, because that's what I like to do, unfortunately on the show. Um, it's such a cool lineup of bands, you know, it's like four like super awesome bands. Like you're saying you're happy with the born against song. the born against songs, killer life's blood songs. Amazing. And the absolution songs, like they are one of those bands. That I think their comp tracks are maybe even stronger than the seven inch tracks. I, awesome. yeah, I, I wasn't a big fan of their seven inch just cause it, they were such a good live band. And the seven inch just didn't do it for me. Um, and I remember being really surprised by how much I like that song on the comp. Didn't Alan Peters from that band just die? I think he did. Oh, wow. Rest in peace. Yeah. Um, I don't know any of the details about that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's weird. I feel like I'm a record nerd. Like we're having a record nerd level dialogue here, except really I'm posing as a record nerd because records anymore (laughs) and so i'm just sort of like trying to piece together what it was like i used to have a really formidable record collection that i was um what was the term ethically sourced like i I wouldn't pay more than the three dollars or whatever and so there's a lot of just like having weird little fines or always paying really close attention to the the people on the streets who sold stuff on blankets you could always find really really crazy like there's a black flag poster i found that I saw it recently sold for $400 somewhere. I was like, oh, that kind of stings since I bought it for a dollar. There's always been this legend that I've heard that uh, Born Against actually had like a record buying budget. You like, you guys would get your per diem, but to buy records. <laughs> Is that true? Mm. I don't remember that specifically being true, but there was a lot of buying records. Um, <laughs> yeah. Also, how do you store records in a hot van? I don't remember that. I carry my records have. around. I carry. I I always carry them around with me the whole time. Like it's like I've got like the uh, the nuclear phone oh on me or something. When you say, are you saying just seven inches or albums also? I generally just buy the seven inches when I'm on tour. Like I find oh, this, okay. the problem, like you're saying with the LPs. Like unless it's something that I'm like, well, I'm never going to see this again. For right, right. This, you know, singles are just easier to maintain. 
for the, exactly the problem you're bringing up? Huh. Um, I don't remember us even having a per diem, but we must have. Um, my financial intuition back then was a little wobbly. Um, there was a lot of me throwing money at problems. I don't even, I know I didn't handle the money born against them. It must've been Adam, but I didn't, Adam was the grown up of that band. He would, he did all the driving. And I mean that kind of literally he had one tour must've been the last one. Cause Brooks was there. Me and Brooks had a bet to see if we could go all the way across the country and not drive. And the last day we were coming home, we we're going to New Jersey and we just stopped in Richmond and I had to move the van six feet. It was blocking something. And as soon as I did, I was like, fuck, I lost the bet. I drove six feet of this national tour. So Adam would also book all the shows. I'm sure he must have handled the money. Man, it's um, for someone who was straight edge, I have my memories are like blackout drunk style and some of this stuff. It's it's a bummer. So listen, I gotta ask you, what what all right, so you heard this weird rumor about Born Against? What was the what was general tenor? rumors about born against i'm always interested in this i uh, to me like born against when i got into hardcore you know i missed you guys by about a year from when i started getting into stuff and going to shows and but like you guys were the band you know well i don't i don't mean i mean that's very nice i, I don't mean that way i just mean like as people what is there a specific thing because it's record gotten back to me yeah really okay yeah that's what i always heard as record collectors i also heard this amazing story that was this uh, like older hardcore guy told me one time that like to, to sell Born Against as being, you know, the, the band of the era was like, you know, they played DC once. And I think he said, I forget who he said it was sitting at the merch table. I believe it was you. And in the story, you're reading a book and all of a sudden you hear these old bones sure get going by hearing some of this stuff or something to that effect, like something super embarrassing. Um, and you look up and it's Ian McKay and he's like, I want to buy some of your records and you sell him some records. And uh, I met Ian a couple years ago and I asked him if that was true. And he's like, does that sound like something I would say? Like, I like Born <laughs> Against, but there's no fucking way I would have said that. Wow. Uh, I would remember if I sold any records to him. I, I know that. Um, <laughs> but that was a rumor that was told to me about you guys. Like, just to kind of like, you know, because it was, you know, and it's funny because like, I feel hardcore is just as trendy as anything else. And there's always like, you know, and I'm sure you know, this too. There's bands of the moment, you know, and you know, sure. and those bands, like when I say the moment, I mean like a rain, but there's like a band that kind of defines an era and sure. born against for DIY hardcore. It's like the band that kind of defined the early nineties, like until I guess here's heroes gone would be like the next band. Ultimately, I guess tragedy. That was exactly the impression I got. Yeah. But the thing that I'm curious about is as people it's gotten back to me. Well, first there's a layer of just stuff that's so fascinating. Cause it's none of it's like Sam was naked at a show and then he kissed a Nazi on the mouth. And I'm like, do you, have you ever met me? Like, that's not really what I would do. Um, but there's this whole other layer of rumors. That's. I've heard you really mean. I've heard definitely yes, that. Yes. That I, that I was really mean to people at shows and to the point I've heard this from multiple people. That the thing, the rumor was that if you tried to talk to me at a show, not only would I be mean to you, but I would try to seek out insecurities you had about yourself, or I would chew you out for saying something dumb, almost like Hannibal Lecter, just like probing for weaknesses and then attacking intellectually. 
and of course, that's kind of a bummer. I, I would imagine I probably did do that at some point because I wasn't always in a good mood. But yeah, um, I, I find it. I got the same. Uh, I kind of heard the same ex- version of that story about yourself, but it was more like that you just didn't suffer fools and that like you guys. Yes. I've heard those words precisely. Yeah. That I I didn't suffer fools, but it's, I don't, I mean, maybe once or twice by accident, but in general, like I really tried to just during that same period, it was like, all right, I'm going to be really nice. I'm going to leave good tips at restaurants. And um, so when this would get back to me, not in real time, but during the course of the band, I was like, shit, I can't win. Like what, what is it do I need to do? I, I don't know. I just, I find that stuff kind of fascinating because it's the person that it's about has no control over it. Like uh, my friend, Jesse Michaels from, uh, who was in Operation Ivy. I didn't meet him until I met him maybe less than 10 years ago. And so I had just only known about this guy as this weird myth and the amount of stories about him were just fascinating, but they're all, he's always kind of the good guy in those stories. And in a lot of my stories, (laughs) I am not just a dick, which I was at times, but I was a dick like 24 seven to everyone. I kind of think one of the, one of my favorite parts in the book is that conversation you have with Aaron um, from Connet bust and, or or from Crim shrine. And he talks about how, yeah, I guess it would have been in dear Jesus. I assume like you, you slag him off. Uh, not him but, but his band his band yeah yeah and and he says it's because and you haven't even heard them he claims is and you brag to him about how the fact that you've done it and i like i found that like so you know like just so revealing because like at the same time like you know people have done that to you now you know and like and it's because in punk rock and in hardcore you almost become like a, a character to people in their own. Sure. Like, yeah. That's, that's what makes it work as an yeah. art form is that you can create these little caricatures. And uh, that's just weird to me when they, when the caricature gets completely taken out of the creator's uh, control yeah. and then it just sort of spins off on its own at the end of born against when things were just going bad between us and everyone, I was really interested in that that question of control and uh, and for a long period, I was completely content just to antagonize anyone who said they had any interest in born against. Cause I just felt like I couldn't trust anyone. People decided that it was really okay to be super shitty to me, which I know seems weird. Cause I know that my persona was pretty shitty, but like on a personal level, like I would have friendships with people and uh, it didn't really make sense to me. So I think, I feel like a lot of the decisions that band made right at the end were, were sort of informed by us trying to sort of take control over these personas that had just been taken away from us and not even taken away in like the classic sense of like, Oh, we signed our rights off to a publishing company or, or whatever. It just like, uh, just on an interpersonal level or a psychic level or something. It was sort of like this weird form of identity theft or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I mean, you, you're, you're getting a real good uh, dose of me just completely blanking out on entire parts of my life, which was probably one of the reasons I wrote this book now. Cause I, uh, I had some conversations where I really realized that like, for example, me and Adam, our memories do not match up on a bunch of things. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. Cause like 
what you're talking about, like that even came to this podcast, you know, like I've obviously been a fan forever and, you know, would ultimately want to have you on this podcast and wanted to talk to you. But it was actually my friend, Chris O'Toole, who I do like a kind of adjacent podcast with that was like, no, you've got to have Sam on. Like you have to have Sam on. But I was like, well, he's going to be a dick. You know, I don't, <laughs> don't want to have him on because he's probably going to be a dick and he's not going to like the show and he probably hates fucked up. And it's just going to be, you know, like projecting once again, my own insecurities on this character that yeah, I yeah. think I think as a lead singer in a band, you kind of become this weird kind of like, you know, not to quote a terrible book title but you kind of become a shit magnet for people in a lot of ways like sure where, where you become like everything that's wrong with your given era and people are just casting that of course you. yeah it's interesting now that i have published a couple books i'm seeing a version of that which really just comes down to how subjective everything is Every, people who read a book bring their own subjective experiences to the book and i've had this happen three times now where i've just gotten feedback on these things I've written and almost none of it matches up. It's almost always unique people having their own really particularly unique stuff. And some of it's really antagonistic. Like they're obviously mad at someone else and that gets turned into they're mad at me for wasting their time as an author or, you know, whatever. Here's a question about fucked up. When did you start? Was it 95? No, 2001. I started going to shows in like 95, but like... Okay, so I was only six years off. You were six Fine. years off. We were... um, okay, <laughs> but... so in Wrangler Brutes, that's when we started hearing about you guys. And there was this thing where it's like, what's their deal? You know? Yeah. And that was during the last Wrangler Brutes tour. Everyone wanted to talk about Fucked Up. We're like, what is this? What What is this band? And I remember listening to some... I, don't, I have no idea what record this was 2003 so you would have had an album out that what, what did you have out by 2003 just a bunch of seven inches like what we okay. were like that was still in the period where we were like kind of like in in the in the zeitgeist for mrr so we were like kind of like talked about a lot in that world but there was some leeching out wasn't there it seems like i was hearing about your band from a lot of non-mrr type sources it's anyway, st- it, was- it started then, but like, it was definitely like around then that it was like, I remember there was like a review for a record we did that Martine, uh, from Crudos just destroyed. Oh, wow. In MRR. Nice. And it was just like, I was like, wow, the page has turned, um, on us. And that's <laughs> hopefully this will make you feel better. When we, in, uh, in 91, we stayed at Martine's house in Chicago and he goes, hey, you and I were pen pals to me. And I just got this pit in my stomach. And he's like, let me pull it out. And it was a copy of my old fanzine. And the letter was all very cringy, white boy hip hop style. Yo, yo, Martine, what's up? Uh, it was so horrific. Like, I, I almost sort of dissociated for a bit there. And uh, because of that one incident, like, I... I fucking proof anything an email like a two line like a text anything i make sure there's nothing in there that like in 2040 someone can or what like 2023 someone can't pull it out and be like look what i got (laughs) oh that's amazing um i guess like also i wanted to you know there's so much i want to talk to you about but like since you brought up chicago one of the most interesting things as far as like just like a weird record that you put out and like a bridge record for me in a big way was that screeching weasel split. 
Um, and I just wanted your kind of like thoughts on that record. I've had uh, everyone but Ben on the show from Screeching Weasel at this point. Um, and I think uh, you should definitely have Ben because he's. I'd be very curious to know what what he's up to. I, I hear a lot of things about him. Yeah, so do I. That's definitely someone that you get a lot of stories about um, coming to. But like anywhere, everyone else that's been on the show, I've obviously asked them about that record because I think it's such a such a weird record. It's a really, really weird record. Um, I'm not nuts about most of Born Against Music. It's good. I, I get. I maybe. Um, but that song Janelle, that was one of the few musical things I've done that that kind of just stuck. Uh, but I are you looking for just any details now? It came about or like me. Yeah, just in memories about it bit. in general. Like I think it's such a weird record. Like yeah, how it came about or just like. You know, like, uh, you know, like, you know, you mentioned in the, once again in the book about potentially doing something with Lookout. Was there talk back then about doing something else with them around the time of that seven inch even or not around the time of that seven inch? But we were slated to have all of our CDs come out on Lookout. And I um, backtracked on that in a way that was just not professional. Um, it was kind of a bummer, but also like I have a label, so probably it would make more sense for me to put out the CDs. Yeah. Um, all I remember about how that thing came about, I wasn't, it was kind of proposed to me by someone else, maybe them. We were really interested. Again, this goes back a little bit to that 1989 thing and just doing things that were interesting. Mm -hmm. And that seemed like something that was handed to us. Um, there, I remember proposing a lot of things that I thought were interesting that in hindsight would not have been good. Like I, I said, Hey, we should try and do a record on revelation. Like there's a small chance we could maybe do that. And as soon as I said, it, I'm like, well, that's not interesting. That's like, what, what, what is that as an idea? That's not much to bring to the table, but that, that screeching weasel thing was really, um, just a weird thing that came out of nowhere and then just happened to be something that turned out really well. Although the art, the born against art, I, I can't even look at because it it's so awful. It's supposed to be awful, but there's like, there's like little cut marks in it. You know, it's again, just not professionally made. And that seems weird that that would bother me, but it really does. Maybe because it's a glossy sleeve, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, uh, something about it really rubbed me the wrong way. They were always a really interesting live band. And as people were really interesting... Ah, oh, shit. Hold on one second. Uh, yeah, always a really interesting band. I, I rode in with them for like four days, and it was this weird little adventure. And I wasn't always into all their music and really, really didn't like their genre. But I think we recognized in them as people that they were just really interesting, strange people. And I think maybe because they were a little bit older than a lot of our friends, there was some different thing going on there. Ben's a really, really smart person. I know he's done some controversial things. What was the thing? It was already like more than 10 years ago, right? Where he, he kicked a woman in the face or something. He got into a fight with a woman at a show, right? Yeah, he punched two women in the face at a show. The weird thing to me about that was that the controversy that it was a man hitting two women. I mean, I get that that's bad, but my take yeah. is like, uh, would it be okay if it was two guys? Like people shouldn't fight at shows. And that to me really illustrated the level of violence that people were okay with at shows. Like it should be controversial if anybody gets into a fight. And the fact that it's not is very strange to me. 
you guys never went through shutting down moshing or did you kind of like have a thing about like shutting down moshing at shows? We didn't, but, but we had a more general thing about being people being stupid at shows. Yeah. Which, what is that? I mean, I guess, so moshing was kind of fine. There was this little period where I was like, all right, I'm going to bring with me a copy of the wizard of Oz. And I would announce to people before the set, like, it, you know, mosh do whatever you need to do but if there's fights or people get stupid or there's just this thing of like big men punching small people in the face then we're going to stop the set and i'm going to start reading to you out of the wizard of oz and so i had to do this a couple times and i remember thinking artistically this doesn't quite do it but it's better than the alternative which is just stopping things and being a joy kill at least this takes a little sidestep that to me was a big part of, because that was my first band. And so there was a lot of just figuring out how to do things, which means you have to do things that don't work live in order to figure out what does work. There's um, Beck, the musical artist, was in a social circle of a lot of my friends out here, including my wife. And so they, she's told me about this and I've heard about it from at least one other person. The, the show before Beck was big where he brought a leaf blower on stage with him, and just blew things around. And how it just, it didn't work artistically. It wasn't funny. It was just kind of a weird, slightly pretentious thing to do. But that's that's what has to happen, you know? And thank God, at least, uh, I had the opportunity to do it before YouTube existed. So some of those things at least weren't documented, um, which is nice. We were also figuring out how to navigate being in a big band, too. I imagine when it's like a small show and everyone knows everyone, moshing's okay. But when it's like 200 plus people, things start getting a little weird. We never played, Morning Us never played any gargantuan shows. Um, and we did still play a lot of shows that were small-ish, even towards the end. I mean, I think our last show, there were probably maybe 30 people there. Uh Jesus Christ. I just, I'm sorry. What was the question? I've been, no, just, sorry, I've been smoking pot every night for the last five years and I am stone cold sober right now, but my brain is kind of a big <laughs> pile of shit. So I would I'm, say you I'm have happy. to smoke weed then. That's the, that, that, that Sam, get on my level, man. We got to smoke weed together. Cause yeah, that's the, uh... you would have, you would have heard some in, in the stream of consciousness you would have gotten, you would have heard some amazing gems, but you would have had to sift through a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff. Like, what is this dude talking about? Uh, it's funny. I'm obsessed with that period of Beck where he's like put. A, he's on that compilation with it. I think it's Cringer or Jay Church and stuff. Like it's so interesting to think that even Beck kind of weirdly comes out of the scene. Absolutely, yeah, and had the same effect on. There's that thing that happened in the '90s where it was like Fugazi, Rancid, Chumbawamba, and then Beck mm -hmm. was part of that. Where this this person or group of people become genuinely famous and all the people in their initial so social circle don't know how to react to it. Yeah. Um, and for us, mostly that was Fugazi. And I think it was a lot weirder for maybe like one little generation after us who saw Green Day become, because Fugazi wasn't, you're not going to hear Fugazi played at the airport. No, but you hear him playing on football games now. Like it's uh... that happened once, right? Did that happen again? I think it's happened a few times since in like sort of this new anything goes era where we're all on mm -hmm. Spotify. So it's all okay now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not nuts about this century. There's a lot of like topsy turvy shit that isn't as fun as I thought it would be. 
I think it's interesting to kind of think about the time in the, the late 90s where you could have a completely separate economy that is a punk rock economy where like records and, and, and restaurants and even even like used clothing stores are all like punk owned and operated. And I just right. think, you know, like and there's no corporate money necessarily involved. But now it's like it's all over the place. Like we're all ultimately we're talking right now on a corporation's. Yeah, it's very disorienting. Yeah. Uh, not good or bad, but just hard to fully make sense of. And also back then, up until the turn of the century, you had some anonymity from your family. I mean, there's nothing I could do now that my family wouldn't find out about instantly. And um, that was that was a long journey for me, trying to integrate Born Against into my family life. And I'm not too proud to not admit to you that there was a period where I told my family I was in a band called Bad Attitude. <laughs> it's that thing. You're in the middle of a conversation, and they just keep asking questions. And you're like, this isn't going to go in any good direction. I have no intention to offend or confuse my family members. What is the quickest way out of this? What's the quickest way from point A to point B? And that was just to straight up lie about my band name. Not a, <laughs> not a great moment. Do you think you guys kind of ended born against because there was like really nowhere else to kind of take it and like, you know, like you mentioned, sign, putting out a record on revelation, you know, like what were you going to do? Like put it a record on, I guess yeah. like Lookout or, or Epitaph or, or Fat Records or something like this. Yeah, there was there was no, we were sort of boxed in. And I think there was a feeling that we had peaked a little bit. We, that last tour shows were slightly smaller. People were a little into making it known that they were jaded and they weren't totally into us. And also we were getting a lot of shit for being a big band, which seems comical now. But I remember somebody, um, a friend of ours, called the house and left this voicemail, or not a, yeah, not a voicemail, left a message on the answering machine. It was like two minutes of him saying, hey, I, I heard you guys have a $200 guarantee, which the punchline is we didn't, but I heard you guys have a $200 guarantee and I just, I, I couldn't believe it. And over the course of the two minutes, he talked himself out of it. He talked himself down. He's like, oh, okay, no, I, I, I know you guys. And I know, like, you guys wouldn't do. You wouldn't have a $200 guarantee. Okay, so I'm glad we cleared that up. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and it's amazing when you think about, like, you know, you play, like, to, you know, not that a $200 guarantee, but you're still you're playing to, like, 200 people. If they're paying five bucks a head, exactly. like a thousand yeah. bucks. We that was also right. The last tour we did, we had all these shows where we would make a lot of money by accident. So, for example, we played in um, New Orleans with I Hate God, but I Hate God didn't play that show. It was just the singer showed up with his girlfriend, and they did sort of a industrial performance art thing. I don't really know. Um, I didn't was watch his much of it. Thirteen, that band too, that was on Slapham, I think. I want to say I want to say no, but I'm not okay. really sure. So I, yeah, I, uh, I don't. That know sounds that. awesome, though. <laughs> it's in a weird way. It kind of wasn't awesome, um, and, but also some stuff got broken, and so he just left. And so at the end of the night, the owner was like, "Well, I guess you guys get all the money." We had several weeks of shows like that. Like I remember Adam having this really large bankroll, and we're like, "Ew, what do we do with this?" You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's all cash at that point too. It's not like yeah, like yeah, the the square or something. Oh my god, bands probably get made by Square now. Oh yeah, oh. yeah. It's, 
it's Oof. weird to kind of watch that happen. Like it's like uh yeah. it's just all seamlessly kind of happened. And it, and it yeah. was just by convenience. It's just like, oh, it's more convenient this uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. Um give me convenience or give me death. The dead candies were right. Those kids yes. with that fucking yep. speech were right. Yep, yep. Jesus. Um Sam, this has been legitimately one of the best episodes ever of this podcast. At, yes. At some point in the future, would you come back and do a part two with me? Anytime. Later tonight if you want. Well, we I barely scratched the surface, and there are a couple more questions before I let you live your life um, freely again. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. You mean tonight or for round two? Well, well for tonight, if there's okay, like one or yeah, two yeah, more questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. No. All's going to happen is I'm going to get stoned and walk around my neighborhood. That's it. Okay, well, I, I don't want to keep you from that. I promise you. So, uh, But one thing I did want to find out, what did you think the first time you heard that Neanderthal recording? Uh, it's extreme excitement versus the first time I heard the man is the bastard album. I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't exactly like it. It was really baffling and strange. Uh, But yeah, Neanderthal was and remains pretty up there. Uh, I don't really, my, my friendship with Eric ended a while ago. I hope him all the best in his future endeavors, but I haven't really listened to the music that, that he played on for a while. At some point, I have a bunch of things like that that are just like uh, things I'll get into later in life. You know, I'm not old enough yet to really go back and appreciate man is the bastard. We need that distance sometimes, you know? Yes, uh, I guess. Yeah. um, But because the thing is like you put out, you know, obviously that split, but you put out so many interesting records as a label, you know, like I think it's a really underappreciated label that you, that you did. Uh, thanks. There's a weird thing about Vermiform. One of several weird things about Vermiform is, um, I get very, very little feedback about that. Meaning I get a steady stream of letters. Now it's mostly stuff about mutations, but, uh, a lot of times it'll be about born against occasionally it'll be about fanzines. Um, but that doesn't just the label in general very rarely comes up. It's sort of like it happened and then it just kind of vanished until I meet people who are really into it. I was really supposed to do a chapter on vermiform records in mutations and I just ran out of time. So I might write it at some point for a future edition. And the thing that I'm really clear on with myself is it can't be, can't be all Eeyore-ish, you know, it can't, it can't be like, this was a really bad experience I had. Cause I kind of already did that in mutations a little bit, especially writing about born against and a little bit of that goes a long way. And so I was talking with uh, a friend of mine who was one of several Vermiform employees and I said, we should really just sit down sometime and just make a list of all the weird, funny stuff that happened with that company. Because I did a spectacularly bad job in running it. Um, but it was just, it was, this, it was a weird entity. I feel like I could have done it so much better. So I think there's regret there. The fact that there wasn't full graphic consistency, like Crash Records or like Blue Note that kind of stings. I think it could have, it could have been more cohesive. Um, the fact that it got really weird and eclectic towards the end isn't bad for me, 
but I have to wonder, there were multiple opportunities where I was offered records that I didn't do that would have provided a lot more continuity to the type of music it did for the first four years. Mm-hmm. And it's just this weird regret. I'll never really know what had happened if I had really tried to do something cohesive with this record label instead of just kind of making it my own thing. That label was really personalized in a way that I don't think many are. Even the ads that I did, all those rub on letter ads, I spent a lot of time on that stuff and it seems a little baffling and strange to me. I think there's a lot of labels from the nineties that have that kind of level of like curatorial kind of like where like the label almost becomes an art project in itself, like bovine records and obviously slap of hams. Another one that you kind of mm, mentioned mm-hmm. that, that jump out where like, yeah, like it's, it's almost like you're getting insight into this person's taste in their mind. That's why I love looking at record labels because it's just such a, an interesting journey in how it was put together. Yeah. Yeah. And you have a bunch of stuff on there. Like obviously the Moss icon, the heroin, the citizens arrest, in addition, all your stuff. That's just like, you know, I mean the Neanderthal Warshack split. That's just like so fucking important to what came after in punk hmm. and hardcore. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, most of that, 90% of that is not me. It's just me being in the right place at the right time. Um, Masaikon were not a great live band. And so I was a little nervous, but that I just love that record. Oh yeah. Um, all that stuff from that year. Cause that was the year that I moved from New York to Virginia. And I think there was a question of if I was going to continue doing the label. And uh, that was right around the time it was just post fear smell. And I did the heroin record and the Masaikon. And so it seemed, it was made really clear to me that if I wanted to continue this, that I would still continue to have access to really good shit. Uh, It just wasn't necessarily going to be regional. Not to dismiss the Richmond, Virginia scene, but there wasn't that much there that was really my style. I mean, I'm, I think the world of Tim Berry, but a veil is not really my thing, you know? You don't really like poppy stuff, it seems. I like, I mean, I like the Beatles. I like pop, pop, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, um, it's like poppy yeah, punk, I should say. yeah, most pop punk really, really doesn't do it for me. And, uh, I like stuff that's either really aggressive or really strange. The music that I listen to now, I listen to a lot of dub now. And the thing that I like about good dub is that it's really creepy and you have to, you have to sit through a lot of reggae and if me at 20 years old walked into the room right now, I would be a dead man. Um, just this reggae listening, pot smoking, middle-aged piece of shit. Uh, so it means you have to listen to, you have to sift through a lot of stuff that I'm not that into. But creepy dub to me has the same emotional texture as like the Sacred Trust record or that first Crucifix LP. Yeah. It's just really good spooky music that suits very particular emotions. Uh, like if you were going to break into a building, that's the music you'd want to listen to uh, as you were robbing a warehouse or something with a ski mask. Did you like any of that Noiseville record stuff that was happening? Like, obviously, you know, there's breakdown and all that stuff, but like, I mean, like some of the weirder kind of like gothier stuff that they were doing too. I'm not really that familiar with that. So okay. no, my, this is the other thing that I've gathered over the years. I think my tastes are really 
small. I don't have a wide field. I'm not someone who, I think mutations made me out to be far more versed in (laughs) underground music history than I really am, which is one of the nice things about writing is you can present yourself to be a smarter person than you are. Or if you're writing fiction, you can have dialogue that is much smarter than anything that you could ever think of because you're dealing with thoughts sort of fourth dimensionally. You can go back into the past and, and rework things. So that was kind of the little trick that I attempted to pull off in mutations. But in real life, I am someone who will find something I like and I'll listen to the same song over and over again for days, occasionally weeks. And I just don't get tired of it. I can listen to Age of Coral. I've never, there's never been a point I was like, oh, I've listened to Age of Coral too much. For some reason, that record is always fresh to me and makes me feel the way that I did when I used to listen to it in high school driving around in my uh, 1974 Impala. But it means that I have a lot of conversations where I have to bluff my way through people's musical knowledge. One thing I'm, you know, just because it was happening at the same time, um, like how much interaction did you guys have with that Cleveland stuff that was kind of kicking off around then? Like obviously integrity's getting going and face values going and all that stuff. Not much, but not zero. Life's Blood played one show in Cleveland. I wasn't there for that. And so Cleveland people liked Life's Blood and we had this weird little audience for Born Against um, that included the guys in integrity or at least did. We played a show with integrity. And I was really scared before the show because I'd heard a lot of rumors about Dwid. Mm-hmm. And he was a gentleman in like this super old-timey, like 19th century way. Like he he was so utterly polite to us um, that we're just like, is this? And then he got on stage and it was integrity and they were yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, Ringworm, we listened listen to Ringworm almost exclusively on one tour, I think. Like, just listen to that tape over and over again. But that's it. I don't know any of the main players. I I couldn't name any bands post-Integrity. Most of the stories I've heard of Cleveland made it sound like a really violent place. And most of the bands that weren't Ringworm and Integrity didn't really interest me. Um, and I guess going like the, when you guys go out to the West coast and when you ultimately move out there, is that power violence stuff still going on at that time? Or like, what was kind of your impression of, of that scene? Cause like, you know, you're putting out stuff that's adjacent to that or part of that world. Um, did you guys ever play out there with any of those bands? Our first show in California was in uh, the Rivera neighborhood, the, the mini, you know, Los Angeles has all those weird, things we're like is this a neighborhood is it a city i don't know <laughs> yeah. so pico rivera we played with i think infest played that show but there was some other stuff from that world the power violence world i always knew about it but um again it was like man is the bastard were so incredible that i didn't need to hear anyone trying to sound like them like minor threats, incredible. Why would I want to sound, why would I want to listen to a band that's trying to be minor threat? You know, when I could just listen to minor threat, there's a really creepy thing. Someone told me about this a couple months ago. Um, and I'm probably going to not going to do the story justice, but someone that I know met a, a, a teenage kid who said he was into power violence and had a power violence band. And so this friend said, Oh, so you must like man is the bastard. And the kid said, who? And then they showed them a photo of Man as the Bastard, and it was Aaron Kenyon, still a good friend and uh, lives really close to us. 
And he's wearing shorts and has his hair in braids. And I think this person assumed that it was uh, like corn, new metal style. And he just shut it down. He's like, I don't listen to music like that. I listen to power violence. You, you don't understand. It, it's amazing to watch that kind of stuff happen where it's like, you know, that, that, like, that idea of moving so far away from the original form now that it's just like. And that it happens on such a quick time frame. Yeah. yeah. That's weird. Well, it's like, it's like right now, more people are probably straight edge because of the pro wrestler CM Punk than because of Ian Mackay. Like there's probably millions of people around the world that have been influenced oh by this God. straight edge wrestler over Ian Mackay. That's really intense. Wow. <laughs> but not surprising. That's how it works. There was a there's a conversation I remember having with Adam in the early '90s where we both realized, oh shit, more people know of Rollins Band than Black Flag, and definitely more people know about Fugazi than know about Minor Threat. That is somehow threatening to us in our weird hermetically sealed little bubble. How strange is that? I really feel like like my band and the era of bands that I'm part of are like your guys' children. Like all these kind of things that you're saying and your guys' sort of philosophies and way of looking at music, and especially in reading the book that comes across, I'm like, oh shit, that's what we were informed by. Like that's you know, this this we are like the the generation after that that wanted that 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 loved hardcore so deeply, but was also so cynical about it at the same time. Huh. So that means you're the people that will be spoon feeding me and Adam applesauce in about 15 yeah, years. Okay. Eventually, when we do the uh, the Born Against tribute album on Fat Records, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, don't worry, we'll be we'll, we'll have someone we'll be able to pay someone to spoon feed you that applesauce. Yes, yes. Um, anytime you want to come back before that time comes and and rehash some more memories, please know the door is always open. This has been incredible, Sam. Cool. Yeah, this was fun. Anytime. Uh, not anytime after tonight. Let's do it. Let me know. Thank you, Sam, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, I, 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 Sam is someone I'm going to be calling back and getting on for a part two very soon. I hope Chris O'Toole and I can interview him together because, yeah, there's there's a lot of questions that Chris and I went over that I did not get a chance to ask him. And so, yeah, we will, we will be doing a part two at some point in the near future. Speaking of near future... Next episode of this show will feature the one, the only, Connor Oberst coming back for, I guess it's kind of like a part two, because he was on when with Phoebe Bridgers a while ago, but it was like the two of them together. So this is kind of like kind of like a, call it a one and a half. Connor Oberst is coming back for his one and a half. You may know him from the group Bright Eyes. You may know him from the Despacitos. You may know him from Commander Venus. And uh, you will know him a lot better after this conversation. And that is that. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect the lives of trans kids and, and trans people in general. Uh, go out there, get informed, sign petitions, get involved, volunteer, uh, donate money if you can. Uh, do, do, what, do whatever you can. Um, you know, it's a, it's a heavy time, um, but, you know, there's a lot of positivity going. Uh, I think, I think uh, yeah, let, let's, let's, you know. Fuck fascism. Let's fight it. Let's smash it. Let's do whatever we can to uh, keep it from coming back. Because yeah, uh, you know you're gonna you want to look back on these days and and realize that you 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 did something and got involved. Um, also, wear your mask. You know we're we're almost there. We're in the home stretch. You know, relatively speaking. But you know, so please wear your mask and and stay safe and and protect people around you. Uh, go out there and make your own culture. 
It helps if you're suffering with mental health issues like myself. Being creative helps. Uh, put yourself out there if you want to, but just just be creative. You know, make your own culture. Um, it, it might make you feel better. So, uh, and uh, sign your organ donor cards. Everyone, sign your organ donor cards, please. Because uh, by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's it. Everyone stay safe. Uh, I love you. And I will see you on the next episode. Check out mutations.